We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse through their industry. Pulse through their industry. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. Have to be consistent. You got to keep the big picture that hey, we're changing the world. We're changing the world. The league presents Electric People. So today, I'm really excited about our guest. We have Professor Cameron Wake from the University of New Hampshire. We're here on beautiful campus. And uh, this episode of Electric People is going to be awesome. So um, I just wanted to quickly, uh, you and I met a couple years ago, well, probably five, six years ago now. You were speaking down uh, on the Harvard campus. Um, and I, so I don't even remember how I heard about this, but I brought my, uh, my daughter, my oldest. She was at the time seven or eight, and she's really passionate about renewable energy. So. I heard about it. I'm like, you know, I'm going to take her down and go uh, listen to this. And she was the only person in the room, I think, under the age of probably 20. And uh, I think she ate a pound of cheese. Uh, there was cheese and wine at the at the event, and um, and uh, she was just pounding the cheese. <laughs> she kept getting up and going to get more cheese. But um, she asked a couple questions, I think, as well. But anyway, um, when we started this podcast, Electric People, you were one of the first people that I, I really wanted to get in touch with because I feel like you have so much to add to the conversation of what we do every day and what our sales oh, does every day. So anyway, um, excited to have you. Honored to be here, Adam. Look forward to it. Cool. Yeah, thanks for freeing up the time. So Cameron, just to kind of fill us in, what, what's your project? What are you working on right now? What's consuming most of your time? Well, so really two things. One, of, one piece of research that's really interesting is uh, I helped lead a team that went up to Denali, North America's highest mountain, mm -hmm. to drill ice cores at 13,000 feet. So we spent about seven years doing all the reconnaissance, sort of climbing up the mountain, hauling big sleds around. So when you say leading, you're there. We're, you're we're like there. Denali. Well, leading, we, we raised the money from the National Science Foundation. We organized all the logistics by training on a mountain climber. That's why I got in oh, to wow, be a, cool. a glaciologist and an ice core paleoclimatologist. And so, yeah, we spent a lot of seasons up there, bought a lot of undergraduates, a lot of graduate students, worked a lot with the National Park Service because they had the helicopter we had to use to get to the site we eventually chose. Uh, so lots of background work. Then we spent 2013, we drilled the ice core, which might seem like a long time ago, but then you got to bring it back and you got to analyze it and write the papers. So we've just had a couple of big papers that came out. One that shows that the rate of annual snow accumulation over the course of the past 150 years has doubled from about nine feet to more than 18 feet. Wow. So this is not something you really expect in a world worn by greenhouse gases. Yeah. Everything's melting, but we're up higher in the mid-troposphere. And uh, essentially what's happening is that atmospheric circulation patterns in that part of the world are changing substantially. So way more moisture is coming in from the Gulf of Alaska and being deposited at 13,000 feet at the same time that the glaciers down at six or 7,000 feet are melting and retreating. Mm. So it kind of points to sort of unexpected surprises in the climate system as it begins to warm. And then another project a little closer to home is uh, I work with the Sustainability Institute here at UNH, and we have a really significant engagement program with communities, helping them, uh, working with them, and really trying to figure out how we move forward, both in terms of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and measuring that and tracking that, because you if you don't manage it, you can't change it. Mm -hmm. Sorry, let me say that again. If you don't measure it, you can't manage it. Uh, and then um, also working at how they can adapt to climate change. And here in New England, it's really all about coastal flooding and freshwater riverine stuff. Those are our big climate disasters that we have. And so it, it's a real big challenge working with communities on how we make them more resilient. So aside from your 
um, background in mountain climbing and things like that. How, how long have you been on this project? How long have you been interested in climate change and sustainability and following it and uh, doing research? So I'd say oh, 35 years I've been okay. really interested in climate change. So you're doing it before, it's cool. Totally <laughs> cool, except I was really cool because I was doing it on glaciers. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really became enamored with, uh, with glaciers through my mountain climbing experience. Mm -hmm. So lots of glacier travel, did it in the Canadian Rockies. And early on, it was like, wow, this system's changing. So that was like 30 years ago. I was walking. Did you around. notice that, or you were totally reading? like, so like you physically year, year to year, you could see change. you could see changes. And you talk to old oh. climbers, and they'd say, well, you can't climb that route anymore because the glacier's not there anymore. Mm. Like, why is that happening? I had a, I had a geology background, and so I became I was just inquisitive. And then sort of the what I really had this connection is that if I study this, I can actually just hang out in the mountains. Yeah, when you were talking about Denali, it's like, I, you're married, I assume. Yes. And your wife's like, are you working? Because it sounds like there's helicopters, there's mountain climbing, there's your buddies with you. It takes a year. Right. You know what I mean? No, so I, I've done uh, 25 expeditions over the course of my life. Himalayas, uh, Canadian Rockies, the Arctic, Antarctica, Greenland. And the major driver was, was first, like, I just want to go climb and, and have some adventure. Mm -hmm. But it was through that experience that I started to see the changes and became way more interested in the science. And then I was able to combine this very specialized skill set of knowing how to ski and be in the mountains and be self-sufficient uh, with recovering ice cores. Wow, cool. So one of, one of the things when, when I heard you speak a few years ago that really struck a chord with me is the economic impact that climate change is happening. And you actually talked about um, the coast of Maine or the Gulf of Maine and how it's one of the fastest, uh, or that, that body of water warming it's faster, it's faster than almost any body of water in the world. And how is that affecting the local economy? Um, and why is it warming so fast? Right. So the Gulf of Maine is really intriguing. So you're right. It's the fastest body of, uh, it's the body of water that's warming the fastest on the globe. And exactly why is not clear. It's not just sort of, you know, standard global warming and the water's heating up because that's happening everywhere. But there's some pretty significant changes in circulation that need to be driving that. So the cold water coming down from Baffin Bay isn't getting into the Gulf of Maine as much. So interestingly, in the short term, that warming body of water has driven a significant increase in the amount of lobsters in the Gulf of Maine. So it used to be really cold, so it was sort of right on the fringe. It's warmed up a bit, and so there's many more lobsters in the Gulf of Maine. Combine that with the fact that as waters warmed down off of Connecticut and Rhode Island and New York Sound, uh, there was this um, increase in the number of lobsters that had paralytic shellfish disease. So it basically kills a lobster. So the lobster lobstering in, in Connecticut and Rhode Island has decreased substantially, and now in Massachusetts, as a lot of lobsters move north. So short term, there's been this huge increase in lobster catches in Maine. I mean, I mean, year over year, it's a it's a multi-billion dollar in industry in Maine now. Ninety percent of the income from fisheries in Maine comes from lobstering. Mm. So it's a single species. We're very vulnerable to what might happen to lobsters in the future. As the Gulf of Maine continues to warm, it's likely that those lobsters are going to decrease in population. So we've set our coastal fishermen up to sort of ramp up for a, a species that may not be there in the future. So short-term gains, long-term challenges. The other piece in the Gulf of Maine that's kind of really sad when you think about New England's history, uh, sort of what, what did people come here for? Two things, right? Timber and codfish. 
And so codfish, juvenile codfish need cold bottom temperatures in order to survive. And we're losing those throughout the Gulf of Maine. So that combined with, uh, with overfishing has actually well in essentially almost the complete closure of the codfish commercial fishing industry. And that's not likely to come back anytime soon. So those are a couple of really big ocean impacts that have happened as a result of a warming climate. That's interesting. It's almost like the, you know, finding more snow uh, on the glacier you were studying and more lobsters. They almost feel like, usually when I hear climate change, it's like, oh, the lobsters are gone, right? Or there's, there's no more snow. But it seems to be presenting itself in kind of like unexpected cycles. It was like, oh, I didn't know that would happen. And then once you studied it, it makes a little sense as to why. Yeah, so it, it's really intriguing that there are these uh, unexpected surprises in the climate system. And uh, as climate scientists, we don't talk about them a lot because they're really frightening. So the one that, that I am I'm starting to engage coastal residents uh, in, in discussing more is uh, what happens when Greenland and West Antarctica disintegrate. So there's these huge ice sheets. And we're now seeing sort of through a lot of different work, but especially through uh, satellite uh, information that's coming in, uh, that they are speeding up and dumping way more ice into the ocean. So uh, like they're kind of behaving like the 18 year old that just got the keys to the car and they've never had this. Flooring it everywhere. Yeah, they're just like, there's a, there's a distinct behavior change. Yeah. And we're seeing that behavior change uh, in these uh, in these big systems. And they're dumping enormous amounts of ice. So Greenland now is losing something on the order of 280 gigatons of ice per year now. That so, sounds like a lot of ice. So a gigaton is, a, is enough ice. If you went into Washington DC to the mall, if you went from the Capitol building to the Lincoln Monument, the width of the mall, four times higher than the Washington Monument, that would be one gigaton of ice. And they're losing that how much? They're losing 280 of those from Greenland a year. At, a bit, at about 100, 180 from West Antarctica. And that's raising sea level by about a millimeter per year. So you, you think that the glaciers might behave linearly, like it'll get warmer, they'll melt a little bit. But one of the sort of the surprises of the key threshold, it seems that we've crossed the threshold and they're just dumping more and more and more ice per year, essentially because uh, they've lost the big ice shelves have disappeared. And so there's nothing that's keeping the ice in on the continent. So they're now just starting to flow way more rapidly. And that's not a system you can change or you, can, you can't put the cork back in the bottle, it's out. And so that, that surprising change as a result of a, of a warming planet will likely lead to sea levels that rise much more rapidly in the future. And then sort of on top of that, once the ice begins to flow and the, the altitude of the ice sheet uh, gets lower, it gets into a warmer atmosphere, so it melts that much faster. Mm. So it's a vicious cycle that leads to the disintegration of, of Greenland and West Antarctica, which each are equivalent of about 20 feet of sea level rise. So that's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen a decade, but it's likely going to happen over the next few hundred years. Right. Uh, we probably got to start thinking about that in terms of where the majority of people live, which is on the coast. Well, I, I, so I watched one of your, um, one of your talks online and you showed a picture of Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire, right? And you showed, a, uh, there was a, a, a satellite image of if sea levels rose up to nine feet, all the area of land that would now be engulfed in water. And, you know, you think about the U S we're a wealthy country, um, comparatively and over the, oh, you know, it's a slow problem that we'll be able to adjust to. We'll be able to build walls and, you know, retaining walls and everything else to, to absorb it. But when you think about poor countries, um, 
how do they prepare for something like this rising sea tide, you know, rising sea levels? And then ultimately, uh, you know, I would assume it will create some some global unrest as people are moving from, you know, they're being forced to move further further inland or maybe even cross borders and create, you know, who knows, wars or whatever, all due to something like this. Right. So there's a there's a new word in the climate change lexicon uh, that's becoming a little more popular. It's called climate migration. So essentially, it's this feature. And let me talk a little bit about the United States, and then we'll talk about globally. So it turns out that if, if there is enough value in a piece of coastal property, we can likely protect it. But it's going to be really expensive. And you cannot protect the whole East Coast. Like we don't, do not have the resources to accomplish that. So we're going to protect New York. We're going to protect Boston. We might even protect Baltimore. We're not going to protect Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Portland, Maine, maybe. And then all those smaller communities in between, there's just not going to be the resources for them. So it's going to be a huge challenge for those communities to figure out how to be resilient to sea level rise and coastal flooding and what that really means on the ground, which is it's substantial resources. Uh, what's really challenged is Florida. So you can't build walls in Florida because in Florida, they're on limestone and limestone has lots of holes in it. It's like Swiss cheese. So if you build a wall, the water can just come in the bedrock underneath and come up from the bottom. So in Miami, they're building huge bathtubs, like whole city blocks of bathtubs that are concrete on the bottom so the water can't come up. Well, they're already dealing with this in Miami, right? Doesn't the water come up through the sewers at a certain time? Twice a day. Yeah. Right. Huge challenges. And so uh, it, the, the, the notion of sea level rise and migration is not just a foreign country problem. There's going to be people moving away from the coast in the United States and definitely in Florida. Big challenge. And uh, I would recommend that people start thinking about this now so we can do it in some sort of deliberate way, as opposed to just waiting for the entire sort of housing market to crash and everybody runs it, right? That's not the way we want to proceed. And then uh, globally, rising seas in particular is going to be a real challenge for half of the world's population that lives beside the ocean. And so where there's a there's this huge question that you asked, and I don't know, but where do they go? And who is responsible for taking care of them? There'll be entire cultures in the Pacific Ocean that disappear. Like, that's just going to happen. How do we limit the amount of, of cultures that disappear? Well, we limit the amount of sea rise, which means we limit the amount of carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere. So it's not, it's not a question of, of about can we stop the suffering? It's a question about how many millions of people can we ensure don't suffer? Because there's already going to be hundreds of millions of people that suffer. So let's, maybe for... Um my own benefit but let's maybe get a 101 version of what's actually happening first of all millions of people suffering that's a crazy thought right it's a really crazy, crazy thought. you've done all the research so you this probably isn't new but adam and i just showed up we're like hundreds yeah. of millions if you don't mind is, um, <laughs> i'm gonna go eat my cinnamon toast crunch tomorrow morning <laughs> i'm just gonna forget it. that guy <laughs> whoa um but maybe give us a, a basic understanding for for our audience that goes out we're in renewable energy so yeah. we like to think that we're um, enlisted in helping the solution, but what's happening to the planet? Essentially, what's causing it and what are some of the effects from kind of an elementary level? All right, so uh, the, the basic story is that we discover fossil fuels and it's essentially carbon in the crust. Uh, so we, we dig up that carbon in the form of coal and oil and natural gas and we burn it for energy and it transforms human existence. We now have energy in these tight little bundles of fossil fuel and we do incredible things with it. We create 
iPods. <laughs> we, you know, we create electricity. We transform the medical fields. But when we burn it, we're oxidizing it, and there's this byproduct called carbon dioxide. So uh, it seems a nerd. It's not a big deal until you burn lots of carbon, and you put lots of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. And so it's just like a blanket that you put on your bed on a cold winter's night. It traps long-wave radiation coming from the Earth. So the more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the warmer it gets. Now, if I can just back up a step, we've always had a greenhouse effect. The reason that we have liquid water on the planet is because we have an atmosphere with carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in it. But we've really changed it. So since we started sort of burning lots of fossil fuels, we measure carbon dioxide in its measure of about 280 parts per million by volume before humans start messing it up. And now we just cross 400 parts per million. And we know that that amount of carbon dioxide really drives significant climate change. And there's other greenhouse gases uh, like methane and nitrous oxide and water vapor. Uh, but we, we talk sort of in general about the problem a lot in terms of carbon dioxide. So we've developed a lifestyle that we really like to have energy. And the real challenge now is that we have to decouple that energy production from carbon dioxide emissions. And that's where renewables come in. Like renewables are this huge solution that allows us to maintain our quality of life that's based on energy but not emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And it is fundamentally one of the most important things we need to do over the course of the next decade, 20 years, is transition our energy system away from fossil fuel and into renewables. As someone that's not in the research field and as someone that's kind of like a observer and now work in the solar industry, it seems like in the 90s when this idea came up, the first like, uh, conscious thought I had about it was when Al Gore was talking about climate change, right? And it seems like a lot of people dismissed it immediately because maybe it wasn't either true or good for their business. And then a lot of people really took to it. And then most of us were somewhere in between. Uh, fast forward to now, even a couple months ago when this UN report came out that says, hey, the, the problem is a lot bigger than we thought and we have less time than we thought. Uh, maybe talk about kind of the, the change in the, the, um, the truth that we've become aware of. Right. So, so I think it's kind of been like a roller coaster ride for us in the field. So yeah, 1990, the first big intergovernmental panel on climate change report, and then sort of fast forward to Kyoto in Japan, and, and we sign an agreement and Al Gore's there, and then the Senate is like, we're not going to ratify it. So we're beginning to see sort of some cracks. Uh, but then even uh, up through um, uh, when John McCain was running for president, right? He came through New Hampshire and and you can go online and find pictures of him saying, you know, global warming, we got to do something about it. John McCain was totally on board. So, so uh, the, the, the mid 2000s. And then it was really uh, after that, that we really began to see this, uh, this uh, partisan split. Um, I also, so on top of that, uh, you know, it, it turns out that uh, when we're trained as scientists, we're not trained as great communicators outside of people in our own clique, which is other scientists. And so it took a long time for climate scientists to really understand that, that we were, if we wanted to engage in this debate in public, we had to have a whole different toolkit. And it took a long time to sort of uh, ramp that up. And so what you're seeing with this latest IPCC report is climate scientists finally trying to find a way to express the urgency of this problem. And uh, the way we've done it, and I thought it was really intriguing, I wasn't involved in, in the latest a report on the 1.5 degree uh, centigrade warning, Celsius warming, uh, was that this 0.5 degree warming, whether it's 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees Celsius, is a really big difference. 
And I'll just come back to something I said before. The difference is, uh, so we save some coral reefs or all of the coral reefs disappear. 0.5 difference uh, in 0.5 so degree warming. So what is warming. that? They're saying, the, what is the 1.5 versus 2? So, so how, much, how much is the world going to warm? If we put so much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere, it warms by 1.5 degrees centigrade. If we put more than that, it warms by two degrees centigrade Celsius. I'm in the and our trajectory States. right now is for 3.5 degrees so Celsius we're, we're warming. Off pace. Way off pace. But what this report shows is that just that 0.5 degrees has significant ramifications. You know, whether it's it's uh, it's a few hundred million of people that get flooded, or six or seven hundred million people that get flooded. There's some real differences in small degrees of warming. And right now we're headed for 3.5, which would mean that we'd be looking at sort of billions of people seriously impacted. Um, uh, so I'll stop there. What do we, so climate change has become a, pol a political uh, discussion, right? Um, and we were talking earlier about, you know, you don't hear uh, Republicans and Democrats arguing, you know, is cancer a political issue or a medical, you know, medical issues. Those aren't political issues. They just, they are the issue and both sides agree we have to work to fix and come up with solutions. For whatever reason, climate change has become a political issue. Why? Uh, so I, I think it can be uh, traced back pretty clearly to the financial interests of the fossil fuel industry. Um, and there's some really good research uh, that's been done on this. And so if, you're, if your listeners are really interested, there's a great book by Naomi Oreskes, who's now at Harvard, called Merchants of Doubt, and it got turned into a movie. And so she sort of goes through this step by step. Uh, but essentially, just like with many big financial interests in the past, so think about cigarette smoking and tobacco, uh, and think about acid rain, there were industrialists who did not want to see the change because they... Uh, essentially benefited from the status quo. And so it took 20 years for us to get that, that stamp on the cigarette boxes that say cigarettes cause lung cancer because there was a big fight. And they didn't say, no, it's not true. They just... Uh, uh, so this will be bad for our business. They, they, well, they, they just inserted uncertainty. Well, you can't be positive that that lung cancer comes from you smoking cigarettes. And it took a long time for the scientific community to sort of play catch up. So and the analogy I use is like, actually getting democracy to work is really hard. And it's really easy to throw the sand in the wheels of democracy yeah. and make it not work, right? So it's, it's pretty easy to sort of uh, inject this uncertainty into the discussion. So, uh, and, and it's becoming clearer and clearer now that ExxonMobil had the scientific researchers that actually showed that carbon dioxide was a problem and was heating the planet back in the 80s. They did some of the original research on this, and then they buried it. And they, they no longer studied that. But what they did was they engaged in a, in an, uh, I would say, a very successful campaign uh, to confuse the American public. And at the same time, they picked a political party that would represent their interests. And that political party was the Republican. And so the Republicans, in terms of raising campaigns to be elected, have, been, have benefited greatly from fossil fuel interests. And you sort of uh, can just go and look at sort of all the Koch brother money that's really gone to Republicans to help them get elected. They're protecting their fossil fuel interests. So I think in a big part, the political football part of climate change has come because of uh, sort of the corrupting influences of money in our politics. So when our, um, you know, we, something we say to our sales guys all the time is, uh, you know, this is your opportunity to get off the sidelines and, you know, get into the game. Um, so. You know, we go out, our sales guys are out there helping customers understand why they should put solar on their home. 
Um, a lot of times our, our reps are focused on how much money our customers can save or, you know, they might even just be thinking about how if they make this sale, they're able to pay their bills or, right. you know, whatever, right? So um, I guess maybe maybe help our sales force understand the, the, the global impact or the, you know, the, the impact that we're actually having as a company and as a rep individually for, you know, we have reps that are, uh, you know, selling a megawatt of solar a year on residential homes at five, six kilowatts at a time. You know what I mean? So what's the impact that our average sales rep might be having? Um, so let me, let me back up a second and say that, uh, that uh, I felt for about a decade now that climate change is the innovation opportunity of the 21st century. The challenge is so big in transitioning our energy system from fossil fuels based to renewable energy base that it's going to take lots of action in many different fields. And I think the shining star of that transition is solar energy. So I think what you guys are doing and all of your sales force are doing is fantastic. You're a really big part uh, of the solution. Uh, I mean, there's residential solar and then there's other people doing sort of big scale industrial solar and we need all of it. So uh, the, the impact in terms of megawatts might not be big, right? And so solar is still a pretty small percentage of the energy mix. But what's really cool is globally in 2015, we crossed the threshold where half of the new energy generation came from renewables, which was primarily wind and solar and small scale hydro. So the new generating capacity is moving towards renewables. And uh, ultimately what we need is for there to be many more salesmen and there need to be many more solar installations because we need to scale up from what you probably think is pretty big now, but orders of magnitude bigger. And uh, globally, the number I can give you is we're now uh, investing, not we sort of globally, humans on the planet, about $300 billion per year in renewable energy. And we need to scale that up to about a trillion dollars per year. Um, and so you asked me before another piece of sort of what individuals can do. So in addition to installing more solar panels, I think it's really important for all of us to start interrogating our investments. Where are, what is your money doing for you while you're building your retirement fund? Or where is it invested in the market? Because what we need to be doing is investing in companies like yours that are installing solar, expect a reasonable rate of return on that investment, but also investing in the solution. I've never heard that before. That's really interesting. I think a lot of people say, hey, well, you know, you can do this to limit your family's carbon footprint, but what's your money doing when you're hard at work selling solar? You know, that, that's a really interesting idea. Well, and I, I heard you've talked about before that it's going to take a lot of private money to help grow the renewable sector, right? So, um, so when you say invest in renewable energy companies and things like that, that, that obviously makes a ton of sense. Um, I'd also add, so I've been in New Hampshire now 32 years, originally from Canada. And, uh, you know, so the, some of the libertarianism in New Hampshire has worn off on me. And so I'm just not looking to big government to solve this problem. I don't see big government solving a lot of, of problems anymore. And so somebody's got to do it. And, you know, you guys are stepping up to the plate, but we as individuals need to step up to the plate. And you really should expect your money to work twice for you, right? You should expect a good rate of return and you should expect it to do something good for the planet, just like the employees of your company are, are doing something good. So what, with, the, with the half degree thing, what do we have to do to get back on track? Like, what does the world have to do and can we make it? I mean, so uh, some of the damage is done, so there's some warming that we are going to have to live with. Uh, but the answer really lies in uh, adhering and pursuing the Paris Climate Agreement globally. 
which was just recently sort of, uh, uh, there was another set of negotiations that just finished in Poland. So uh, what's very interesting is if we'd started, let's say in the year 2000, we could have figured this out by reducing our greenhouse gas emissions by 3% per year. Now, because cars, like that's factories, entire, that's homes, everything. all emissions, food system, the whole bit. Now uh, it's more like we have to uh, reduce on something on the order of 15 to 20% per year. So uh, the, the point is that by 2050, we kind of have to be net zero, which means anything we put into the atmosphere needs to somehow be removed from the atmosphere. So it is a really challenging, steep reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Um, uh, and it is, you're right, it is across every sector. So how do we do that? Uh, in the, the home energy sector, uh, right, we need to electrify and we need to ensure that that electric generation comes from renewable energies like solar. So we have to have sort of all our homes need to be running on renewable energy. In the transport field, we also have to electrify and make sure that all of our vehicles are now running on electricity with really cool battery technology of, of some kind. And then we have to transition our food system away from sort of big farms that raise lots of cows that when they eat grass, emit tons of methane. Uh, and we also, you know, big industrial agriculture where we in, uh, invest in lots of fertilizer, that's lots of nitrogen in there, turns into nitrogen uh, oxide. Uh, we need nitrous oxide. We need to sort of figure out how to change that so our food system is not generating uh, so much greenhouse gas. And a big part of that is just eating less red meat and really appreciating uh, the red meat that you, that, that you do eat. Um, and, and we need to do that really quickly. So we need to scale up and it's really all outlined in the Paris Agreement and this most recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change on trying to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Um, and I would add, it really requires, and this sort of pains me, I grew up in Canada, but I'm a US citizen now too, is that why is this country unwilling to lead on this topic? We need the United States to lead on this topic. And again, if it's not the federal government, then it should be the people. And uh, the, in addition to, to the expansion of solar, which I see as really promising, where a lot of the cool action right now is in cities. So cities have just taken on, on this mantle of we are going to solve this problem. And so a lot of cities have identified that they're gonna be net zero by 2050, by net zero, right? No net emissions of carbon dioxide. Even things like outlying plastic bags and all that kind of stuff, obviously, you know, make a difference. So uh, outlawing plastic bags was a great idea in 2000. And now like, why do we still have plastic bags? We have to do it, but like get on with it. And like, you, do you like fish in the ocean? Like we got to get rid of plastics in the ocean. That's one small component of this really big challenge, right? We, we got to get rid of straws, but really that was like two decades ago. Right. We should have figured mm. that out. It's a way bigger problem now. So do you think we'll pull it off? Like, it sounds like we know what to do. And it is kind of, it is kind of, I never thought about that. It is a little embarrassing that we're kind of like, we're the ones that still haven't jumped in the water. Every other country is like, you know, but you are starting to see like California has a goal to be 100% renewable by like 2050 or 2047 or something yep. like that. But in your opinion, what do you think it's going to take? Because it's probably not a law, right? It's going to take people decide, is it going to be innovation where electric cars are so cool that you would never choose a gas powered vehicle? Is it going to be that well, utility like rates are so expensive that you have to go solar? It feels like we've almost hit this tipping point where one, it's becoming more socially acceptable um, and it's becoming like a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think Tesla obviously has been a leader on the, on the auto vehicle you know, type thing. I think solar now, you can't go into a neighborhood in Massachusetts or California or a lot of places we operate in without seeing solar panels somewhere. So it's, 
becoming a lot more socially acceptable. Do you feel like we've hit that tipping point where people are now like on board with it? I, I think we've hit a really big tipping point, and I don't know if it's about people being on board with it, but, but the two, the two uh, uh, actions in society that are coming together that really, I think, make me optimistic. One is that we figured out the technology so it's not onerous. So I go home every night to a house that has solar panels on it, and my electricity works just fine. It's a completely stable system. I, you know, I, I, I net meter so it goes out in the grid and I'm helping my neighbors or I'm taking something off. So, so now your industry has really evolved substantially over the course of 20 years to make it seamless, essentially. I mean, truly seamless, unlike most of the web pages we go to, right? Well, and getting it, right? Like if somebody wants solar from one of our guys, they have to be home like a couple times to meet with them, but they've got it. It's automated. It's really simple. Right. So I agree with that. Um, and, you know, great electricians and like it all just works. There's nothing. It, it's just easy. Uh, and then the other piece I think that is really big is that uh, it's not like you have to pay more for it. You actually save money by going to solar if you make the right decisions on sort of how much you install. And, and so the fact that, that uh, many, a lot of solar uh, is less expensive than fossil fuel now and that it works really well and is easy, I think that's the tipping point. It's not about me banging the hammer on people who don't understand climate change or don't believe the, the extensive amount of scientific information. That's my world. I'm gonna continue to, to, to make that case. Uh, but I think it's people saying, I can have a better quality of life with solar. Well, I'm going to do that. And so climate change, it's an issue. It's going to be an issue for, you know, 70% of the population now believes that humans are causing climate change. And they're going to see that value add in what they do with solar. But I think the tipping point is that uh, it's just, it's less expensive and it works. And now, so my question is, whenever anybody says, well, I'm going to get an oil furnace, it's like, why? Like, just go solar and put in air source heat pumps they work beautifully in the Northeast. Why would you go to something that has this huge risk associated with it? And I'll just end up by saying, you know, uh, I did get a wood pellet boiler because we still have some cold. So we have air source heat pumps, but I have a wood pellet boiler. Um, and, the, you know, one of the best days in my life was when that stinky old oil tank in my basement got taken out. And all of a sudden, my basement smelled like wood chips. It was like, bonus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I like that point. There's a lot of people that our guys will approach and they'll say, oh, yeah, the solar, that's not for me. And I don't believe this and that. And a lot of your guys will say, listen, it actually doesn't matter. Uh, it's more economical, it's cleaner, it's easier, and it's a better plan. And I actually think that's where a lot of the adoption Well, and even, even we'll get people that sometimes will criticize, you know, we don't, we don't like your industry because it's heavily subsidized, which the fossil fuel industry is as heavily subsidized as any industry, right? So, right. Um, which kind of leads me to, uh, you know, on social media, you see people all the time talk about like these left-wing, you know, kooks that are trying to convince and scare everyone into climate change and this and that. Um, what's your response or how do you combat that sort of even, you know, divisive talk? Um, because like we said earlier, it's, you don't see people debating whether or not cancer is a thing, right? So, um, so anyway, uh, I'm kind of curious to hear, like when you hear people talk like that, when scientific data shows, you know, 97% of scientific data shows that it is happening. Um, and also, a lot of people will make the argument that it's just cyclical. You know, we're just going through one of these cycles that's going to go back and the, you know, the earth will correct itself. So I guess... How do you counter that? 
Well, so a, a couple things. One is that I, I think we have to be very careful about sort of extreme opinions on the left and the right. And so when I hear people sort of explain that my science is no good, I, I don't engage them in the discussion of the facts because they're not interested in the facts. They're ideologically driven. And so I don't have a lot of time for extreme environmentalists on one side or, or extreme Tea Party individuals on the other side because they're not, I, I don't feel like they're working to solve the problem in sort of a, a democratic way through rational discussion. So I'm just going to be very clear is that there are people that I just don't talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not worth the energy, right? It's, and, and, well, and they're, they're not going to listen to a rational discussion yeah. based on scientific information. So uh, with the, with, um, uh, uh, there's people who, who, it's really important to understand that people don't make decisions based strictly on rational information. Right? So I've learned this from psychologists who have helped a lot of climatologists uh, with our messaging, is that when people make decisions, it's based on uh, values, it's based on the norms that they exist in, and it's based on knowledge. So if you only change not knowledge or introduce knowledge into a discussion without understanding values and norms, you're really not going to change people's uh, notions or change the way they behave. So think about it as you have to talk to the heart and the mind. It's not just about the mind. And for 20 years, us climate scientists just talked about the data. Right. Like, don't you understand the data? Here's the data. Yeah. And so when, when somebody says to me, well, I don't believe the data, there's a very clear message in that is that you don't understand science because I don't believe the data either. The data are, the data is the facts. Right. And so I believe we should do something about it, right? That's the belief system. The scientific data is fact. And so um, uh, the important part for me is then uh, talking to individuals about what it is they do believe in. What is it that is your value? So let's talk about what unites us, not what divides us. Because if you want to lecture me about science, we're not going to get very far because I actually know the science. So uh, I've spent the last sort of five to seven years really trying to understand sort of what motivates people with different value sets and different norms than I have. And I think I, I've, I've had some experiences that show when you back up, and talk about, uh, if, if you back up enough, you get to a point where we have some shared values. So for us on the seacoast, it's, we love living in seacoast New Hampshire. It's a beautiful area. So don't we want to help preserve this area and become more resilient to flooding? And that's been a conversation that we've been able to get to from people across the political spectrum. Now, what we're going to do about it? There's going to be lots of different ideas on how to do that. So I, I, I try to see sort of the, the values in people in order to move forward. And I definitely have stopped saying, you just have to understand the data. Yeah, <laughs> people don't like to hear that, I'm sure. Um, so Adam mentioned that uh, you know one of the common arguments that that people will say is, oh, it's just cyclical. The world's been going through this forever. It's not necessarily human, or you don't know if the humans have caused it. Um, is there any credible science that still has some other uh, explanation? No. So, uh, it, so uh, Adam mentioned sort of 97% of, of, uh, of scientists agree, sort of like 100%, well, 99.9% uh, of the facts are in, and it's perfectly clear. Does everybody know the one that doesn't? Is it like Tom? Like, <laughs> Freaking Tom. Yeah. Downstairs. Well, uh, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so, 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 so there, there's a few climate scientists that I would say, you know, are essentially funded by the fossil fuel or benefit from fossil fuel resources or get a lot of attention and their holdouts. But, but they never show up. We don't see them that much. They show up on CNN. They don't show up at our, our scientific meetings. Um, so I think what, not like what, a plausible alternatives. Well, so it's interesting. How do you know climate change is cyclically? 
it's because paleoclimatologists have gone back and we've drilled ice cores and uh, drilled lake sediments and drilled ocean sediments and looked at tree rings and coral reefs. And we've actually studied the earth as a system mm. to understand how climate has changed over thousands to millions to hundreds of millions of years. And the reason we know that there's these cyclical changes is because we've uncorked these records and we've interpreted them and we've understand how the earth operates. And so it's these same paleoclimatologists now with climatologists who use these great tools called global climate models uh, that are, are looking at, well, why has climate changed over the last 50 years? And we've looked at all the variables. We've looked at solar variability. We looked at orbital variability. Have volcanoes changed? And the answer always comes back to the fact that we have increased the greenhouse gas content of the atmosphere, and we know exactly where it comes from. Well, as I you said, can it, see that in tree rings and cores and coral. Absolutely. And I, I said today at a, at a presentation I was doing down in Nashua, New Hampshire on Nashua resilience, is that if it looks like a duck and it acts like a duck and it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck. And we've done this experiment again and again and again over the course of 30 years. And we are absolutely certain that the, most, the vast majority of warming that we're seeing is being caused by human beings because we understand the physics of greenhouse gases. And those individuals that say it's not true or I don't believe it are not being driven by an objective analysis of scientific information. They're being driven by ideology. Mm -hmm. And one of the primary ideologies is, oh my God, if this problem is so big, it's going to require big government. And I don't like big government, so I don't believe in it. Interesting. And I would say, let's start with the scientific data and analysis and agree there. Now let's have a debate. You don't want big government to do it? Hey, I don't want big government to solve this problem either. I want my community to solve this. Um, so it, it's, it requires a, a, a different perspective, but the science is absolutely clear. And by the end, just, just to connect the dots, right? We know climate changes cyclically because the paleoclimatologists figured it out. And we're the same group that's telling you humans are doing it. So, like, don't use half an yeah, argument with have, me. You wouldn't have even known it was cyclical unless we told you that. And now you're, so now you're telling us, choosing the you're trying to take line. our data and tell us that it's not, yeah. That's fun. Who's the biggest culprit to pollution right now? Which industry? Uh, so, so that's a good question. Um, uh, it, it used to be sort of, uh, in terms of the burning of fossil fuels, uh, it sort of was sort of uh, evenly distributed between transportation and buildings. And, and this is for the U.S. And now what we're doing is as our buildings become much more efficient, we're seeing sort of transportation mm. uh, become a, a bigger uh, a share there. Um, uh, and then uh, the food system is, is, uh, is pretty big. Um, you know, coal used to be sort of, right, a, a really big producer, but, but coal is just becoming a less significant part of our energy mix uh, in no small part, A, because it's expensive, and B, because it comes with all these additional risks of it actually really harms uh, health of a lot of people because of all the sulfur dioxide and mm -hmm. particulate matter. Uh, and while, uh, while I, I certainly know that there's uh, a lot of very proud coal miners, the whole issue of black lung and silica disease in, in miners' yeah. lungs is really serious. Well, it's, and now the solar industry employs more people than the fossil fuel industry combined, right? So it's, you've seen the shift in you know, the workforce moving toward, you know, they're going to where the, they're going to where the puck's moving toward rather than following it around, right. so which is obviously good. Um, I think probably the biggest question for me and my takeaway on this whole thing, am I still gonna, am I okay eating at Chipotle every day still? <laughs> uh, are you eating red meat every day? Uh, I mean, I, I, I toggle between uh, carnitas, yes. I toggle between <laughs> carnitas and steak, so. So, so here's what I would suggest is uh, just if, if you're eating at Chipotle every day, 
like just pick one day a week when you don't have any meat. So our, our family, we just have meatless Mondays. We don't eat any meat on Monday. Okay. Has not affected my, my, uh, my quality of life. So start there. And then once you realize that it has no impact on your life and there's really good vegetarian burritos at Chipotle, mm -hmm. is start doing it for another day. And if you, if you usually have, I don't know how many burritos you want, but if you'd like to have two, like have one that has meat in it. So it's not about like being dramatic about change. It's about just beginning to shift a little bit. So it's not about, about losing your quality of life. It's about transitioning to a better quality of life. Mm. And I'll tell you, Adam, you'll be better off. Your health will be better off in the long run if you eat less red meat and more <laughs> vegetables. I don't mean to sound like your mother, but it's true. But there's science behind <laughs> I think um, one of the things that you said earlier that I really like is it's the largest opportunity. I can't remember how you said it, but the climate real... change is the, is the innovation opportunity of the 21st century. Yeah, that's so that's so true because some people look at it and they maybe don't want to face the reality of the science because it's really scary, right? Like the fact that I live in coastal California. So I don't like to hear that the oceans, that all these people are going to have to move, right? But when you think of it as an opportunity, that's essentially what America was made off of, right? Like, here's this oppressive system that we're a part of. Here's an opportunity. It's going to be really hard, but I think we can do it, right? And so um, I remember I, I watched this TED Talk. You've probably seen Al Gore's Case for Optimism yep. in Climate Change. Now, it came out before these most recent reports, but he said in there, we're going to win this we're ahead of pace. Do you think that's still true? And what do you think we have to do to kind of ignite that entrepreneurial spirit to have people start innovating in solar and stop being scared of it? Uh, or so, renewables as a whole, I guess. Uh, so uh, we are going to win it. Uh, I don't think we're uh, ahead of pace. In the US, we're doing really well, even without federal leadership. Like our, we've bent the curve. We're now our greenhouse gas emissions are going down. Um, uh, so that's good, but we're going to have to do much more, much more quickly. And we're going to have to help the developing world figure out how they can develop on a pathway where they don't rely upon fossil fuel energy. So that's, that's a, a, a really big challenge. And then I forgot your second question. I forgot it too. But that gives a big, uh, <laughs> that gives a big humanitarian thing, like for the people that love to go to third world countries and be involved and help. I mean, I, you could correct me if I'm wrong on this, but a lot of the new grid in Puerto Rico from the recent uh, uh, damage there was solar and renewable, right? It was built off solar and, and batteries and things, right? So I, I was promoting that. I don't know how much of that happened. I do want to come back to your other question though, because I just remembered it. It's that how do we spark innovation? Oh, right. Um, so uh, uh, there's, I'm sure you've heard about sort of the, the diffusion of ideas in a society. You have your early adopters, sure. right? And so the early adopters are in, right? Right. We've many of us, right? You guys are seeing this this big growth in your industry. Your salesmen are doing a great job. So how do we get the middle part of uh, of of America to really engage in this? And I think I, I mentioned sort of price is really important, right? Once this is uh, less expensive, and what they once they see. Uh, it's not scary. We're also beginning to see this change, this continual change in public opinion about climate change, where we're now at about 70% that believe uh, humans are causing climate change. So I think we're close to that, uh, to that tipping point. But part of it is really about companies like yours that are going around and knocking on doors and talking to individuals and showing them the technology that it isn't like, it isn't any different from what's really cool about their new F-150, right? Is that things are changing all the time and this is new technology that's essentially going to make your life better. Uh, and so just keep on doing what you're doing. I think that's a really important part of this is showing people that it's just, it's, we've always changed and this is really good change.
Yeah, we, and just to, I guess, end on this, we, we explain all the time, you know, with our industry, you know, when people are looking for careers and jobs, they look for, you know, they want to be in the right company at the right time. And uh, we feel really strongly that our company, like you're, you're, we're, our, our sales force, our leadership, our installers, our electricians, we're going to look back in 10, 15, 20 years from now and something we're always trying to help paint this vision of we're a part of the solution. We're a part of this tipping point that happened. And when our grandkids 50 years from now look back and go, remember in the, in the early 2000s, in the you know, 2010, 11, 12, that's when the solar industry really boomed, right? And we really started to see this solution. So um, anyway, so hearing your feedback and hearing your perspective on it, I think uh, goes a long way and really giving our sales force that perspective they'll they'll need and and uh, you know helps them feel like what they're doing matters. So I think that's a great point, and I think that 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 phrase that sort of I am part of the solution, or later on in their lives I was part of the solution, is going to be something they can look in the in the eyes of their children and grandchildren and say I was on the ground uh, making it happen. So if I can, I want to share twelve words with you uh, before we go about climate change. So uh, this is how climate scientists have condensed sort of, you know, tens of thousands of studies into 12 words. It's real, it's us, it's bad. Scientists agree, but with the help of companies like yours, we can fix it. That's great. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time, Professor Cameron Wake. Uh, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for coming up to our beautiful campus here at UNH. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.